0: It was a beautiful day on Lake Palestine. I had been invited to sit a spell and share some conversation with Dr. Stan Toussaint at his lake house near Tyler. Opportunities like that should never be squandered. Even as a, as a very young man, I appreciated that. So, so I, the, the young adult working at camp, was blessed to sit down and sip some lemonade with the wise old seminary professor. As often happens, you notice this often happens with young, zealous Christians who are trying to learn from Scripture. The conversation turned to the problems of what we call free will and predestination. Have, have you noticed that whenever you're talking in an earnest conversation with a with a young adult Christian, one of three topics will almost always come up: sex, the Book of Revelation, or predestination. So, I don't think Stan and I talked about sex that day, but we did inevitably get around to questions about. Predestining, God predestining. If you look in your notes, you can see how Stan answered me. Um, if you're online with us, you should be able to to tab up and get a hold of the notes. If you're here in the auditorium, you can open up your bulletin. You'll see what Stan told me. He said, "Wayne, first you need to understand this term, antinomy." Uh, the old Greeks uh, made it up, anti is against, nomos is uh, rule or law uh, or reason. Uh, by the way, that's your fancy word for today, boys and girls, antinomy. On the count of three, you get to say antinomy, uh, not antimony, that's the metal. This is this is an, a different idea, antinomy. One, two, three, antinomy. antinomy, very good. And antinomy is the juxtaposition of two things, that that are both demonstrably true each is demonstrably true they seem to contradict and yet somehow they don't somehow they work together it's a really important idea in uh, in mathematics and in philosophy for example antinomy was a huge deal to archimedes i think that because archimedes was comfortable living with the tension of antinomy he was able to discover things no one else had ever discovered like pi and, and the, uh, the math principle of buoyancy that allowed ships to get larger and larger changed the world. In my talk with Dr. T, he went on to show how antinomy is incredibly important in our grasp of predestination and human responsibility. He told me this. He said, Wayne, there are dozens, and this is true, there are dozens of passages that indicate that humans make choices or that humans have responsibility. Actually, you'd probably do better if you did that in the old English way, response ability. Uh, And then he said, and this is true as well, there are hundreds of passages that declare God Almighty is completely sovereign, foreordaining, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful. Humans are unable to grasp each of these balancing truths at the same time. By the way, that should encourage you in a way because there is a depth of of biblical theology. And, And when you see equal balances, certainties that are, that are balancing against each other, it oftentimes is a clue that you've stumbled onto one of God's attempts to relate truths that are beyond human comprehension to limited human minds. Now, Dr. Saint went on. He told me this, and I've shared this illustration with some of you before. He said, my parents uh, had a lake house near Hinkley, Minnesota. And he told me, Wayne, it was very different from this lake house where we are today because we were right down on the water. He said, my parents' lake house was four stories deep. And I say deep because it was built down into the side of a, of a cliff. Uh, he said when, when we would pull up to the, the first story, which would the, the main floor was when you pulled up on ground level, and we would pull up in our car, and you'd get out, and you could walk around to the cliff this way as far as you could go. You walk around the cliff on the side of the house this way as far as you could go, and all you could see would be, would be a, uh, a tin roof. And, and you'd say, that house has a tin roof, and you'd be right. But when you went into the house, it was built down into the side of the cliff. By the way, I've been in a lake house just like this on Lake Tenkiller in Oklahoma. It's really, really cool. Um, Their house, uh, Stan's parents' house, was four stories deep. The bottom story was actually the boathouse. That's where the boats were stored. So he said, we would get in our boat, and you could row out, and you could roll around to the cliff as far as you could go this way, and then you could roll around as far as you go this way, and you look at the roof, and all you could see would be a tile roof. And you would say, that house has a tile roof. And you'd be precisely right. And then Stan said this, From each point of view, you are convinced that that roof is what you can see, tile and tin, respectively. Only God is able to be above and see both at the same time. Close quote. So it is with the antinomy truths that are in the Bible. Now, as we finished the lemonade and I got up to get back to work at camp, Stan gave me an assignment. Ever, the professor, he told me to draw up, he said, I want you to read the Bible this summer, and I want you to draw up a list of antinomies of these two-roofed truths that are in the Bible. And I said, yes, sir, and I did that assignment. I've modified it since over the years. But um, I'd like to share with you a brief, this is just a brief chart of what I discovered that summer. These are some of the antinomies that I found in Scripture. God is transcendent. That means He is beyond us, but He's also imminent, which means He's totally near. Jesus is fully human, and He is what, everybody? Fully divine. The Bible is God's Word. That means it's divinely inspired. And the Bible is also a series of books authored by humans with their own language limitations. The church is one universal body of Christ, and it is many particular local communities. The church is holy. That's what it means when God's Spirit is with us. And yet the church, we see this in the Scripture, is is imperfect. It is in need of continuous reform. Human nature is good. We are made in God's image, and that's not erased by sin. Human nature is sinful. The imagio Dei is defaced, not erased, but defaced. Both are true. Right, antinomies. The focus of our lives should be on the present world, and the focus of our lives should be on the world that is to come. As human beings, we are individual persons. Scripture says each one stands before God individually. And as human beings, we are also social beings who exist in families and communities. Faith says the Scripture is a gift from God. Faith says the Scripture is a proper human response to God. We know God through both faith and reason. Our relationship to the earth, it, it involves caring for the environment and using up the world's resources. It's, it's both. God's kingdom, as it was preached by Jesus, is a, Jesus said his kingdom is a present reality. Jesus also said, my kingdom is awaiting future fulfillment. Antenomy, what's the word again? One, two, three, Antenemy. We respond to a Christian's death with mourning for our loss, biblically appropriate. We also respond with rejoicing over their new life with God. Life after death can be thought of as as the resurrection of the body. It can also be thought of as the immortality of the soul. It's both. Risen Jesus is present. He is ever with us. And risen Jesus is ascended, sitting at the right hand of God the Father to return physically again. The final judgment is individual. It's particular. The final judgment is also general and universal. Christian theology embraces the via positiva, what we can know, and the via negativa, what we cannot know. No, antinomies. Now, today we're only going to deal with one side of the roof, okay? It's not that the other side doesn't matter, but this is our focus for today, the tile roof of, of the often miscast and abused doctrine of predestination. Your second fancy word for the day is predestination. On the count of three, one, two, three. Open your Bible, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find it in the New Testament after the Corinthian books and Galatians, then Ephesians, just before Philippians. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul introduces himself and then says this, verse 3, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. All God's people said, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Now, there are some related terms that we've got to deal with if we're going to understand predestination. The first you'll see in your notes is foreordination. This is a slightly broader term than predestination. Foreordination. Have you ever built something without planning it out precisely? Have you? I built a treehouse like that as a child. Yeah, you have too. yeah. And uh, how, how does it turn out? Not well. That's not how God builds. He's a careful architect. He planned it all out before he ever even started space-time with creation. This is another reason that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. To imagine something as finely tuned as this universe just building itself seems incredibly ridiculous to me. Dr. Francis Collins agrees with me in that. He was a default atheist. He had always been taught that science demands atheism and random choice. But as he directed the amazing Human Genome Project, Dr. Collins became convinced there must be a creator. Look what he said in his book, The Language of God. The world is too complex. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. The world is simply too intricate and complex for any other reasonable explanation except God's foreordination. It's the only thing that makes sense. Look at verse 4. Ephesians 1.4 is describing the evident truth that God foreordained. Read it again. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, remember, antinomy, human response is also involved in this, but we can only look at one side of the roof at a time. The key phrase is before the foundation of the world. That is foreordination. God planned it all out ahead, even though we cannot imagine or understand such a thing. God has ordained all of His construction ahead of time. Look at the very next verse, uh, verse 5. In fact, join me on the part that's underlined on verse 5, if you would. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Slide down to verse 11. Join me again on the underlined part. In Him, by the way, it's talking about Jesus. In Him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of His will. Job, summa, thank you. Job summarizes the whole discussion this way Job 22. When you, God, make a decision, it will be carried out. But wait! You're saying in your ace attorney uh, imitation, I have an objection. What about the times when God's foreordained plan seems horrible? It's an excellent question. Thank you for asking. Scripture takes that question head on. After all, no one ever suffered like Job and he's the one whose book records this summary. When you make a decision God, it will be carried out. On this earth, every human has endured horrors and pains. Probably none are as wrenching as losing a child. I have a number of Christian friends who have walked through the valley of burying their children. Not too long ago, I was honored to talk with one of these parents and the discussion came around to for ordination. I was so moved by something he said, I asked him if he wouldn't mind writing it down so I could share it with you. Here's what he Here's what he sent me. Here's what he wrote. Wayne, the earliest church shows amazing wisdom in accepting for ordination. As merely one example, look at Acts chapter 4. The apostles had seen their mentor brutally killed. They were then illegally detained and threatened. And yet, when they met with the church, they prayed through Psalm 2, thinking about the hurt they had endured from evil people. And they said this, but everything they, and the they is their tormentors, Everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. He went on. The answer to hurt is to embrace God's foreordination and foreknowledge, not to create a lesser God in our image. After all, as Acts chapter 4 shows, the resurrection of Jesus was also planned beforehand. That resurrection makes everything different, including the loss of our daughter. We know that this is not the end, and we praise God for His plan to resurrect, even though it includes pain before all is made new. Close quote. Amen. Now that statement also contains the next aspect of our study. He said for ordination and for knowledge. Look up here, Romans chapter 8, 28 and 29. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Foreknew. Verse 28 refers to the foreordination that we just studied. And then verse 29 zeroes in on on foreknowledge. We'll get to predestination. Just hold your horses. My old professor, Dr. Pentecost, summarizes foreknowledge really, really well. Look what he said. He said, God is a God who is all-wise, who knows with certainty the course of all events, past, present, and future. God is an omniscient God, yet foreknowledge is not synonymous with God's omniscience. Foreknowledge, as used in Scripture, refers to what God knows with certainty will come to pass because He has decreed that event. For knowledge, then, is the result of God's foreordination of what would take place. Close quote. Amen. Peter uses foreknowledge in his first epistle. First Peter chapter 1, he starts off this way. Look how Peter begins his first letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the what, everybody? For knowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Yes, human beings are chosen, and yes, human beings choose. It's both. God chooses for knowledge People respond. They choose. Don't try to eliminate either side of the antinomy or you will subvert one side of the roof to the other. Don't look for solutions to this difficulty. Look, look. Peter did not say, this is so important, he did not say, you're chosen because of God's foreknowledge. He did not say, you're chosen because God could tell who was going to respond to him. He says, chosen according to God's foreknowledge. God's ways are beyond us and our tidy solutions to reduce him to our reasoning. He exercises complete foreknowledge. The best illustration I can offer comes from creation, it's from light. There's a famous experiment. It's called the double slit experiment. It's been being done for 120 years. A guy named Young began it about 120 years ago. This experiment, it can be done with light waves, light photons, particles. Um, it, It allows... It it, it shoots light at a wall that has two slits cut in it. That only allows small amounts to come through. Now, because there's just two little slits in this wall, when you're shooting particles of light, uh, like from a laser, the the results should be scattered. They should bounce around against each other until some get through, and it should leave a scattered-looking pattern on the wall that receives. But that's not what occurs. To put it very simply, the light in the double-slit experiment moves on a mission, and it is totally harmonious. It's like the electrons, the the photons know where to go. Curiosity Magazine, Ashley Hamer summarized it this way. She said, this suggests something very, very weird is going on. The photons seem to know where they would go if they were in a wave. It's as if a theater audience showed up without any seat assignments, but each person Still do the exact seat to choose in order to fill the theater correctly. Close quote. There's a great deal to amaze here. I suggest you look up double slit light experiment or Wheeler's experiment. For our purposes, the bottom line is light behaves as if it has, it has foreknowledge. It has information that it should not possess. But there's more. There's more. As you likely know, light travels in both waves and in, in particles. And here's what happens in the double slit experiment. This is incredible. When a detector is present, the, the, the photons, the electrons that come from the photons, they act, they act like particles. When the detector is not present, they act like waves. Is that amazing? Parti- I'm sorry, when they're not turned on, they act like particles. When they, uh, yeah, you're right, when they're not turned on, they act like waves. When they're turned on, they act like particles. That, that is mind blowing. Here's what it's saying, if no one watches you get waves, if you watch you get particles and somehow these photons of light know before they are even fired because the experiment can be done as Wheeler did where the detectors are put in after they're fired, after the light's fired. Now that elicits a question that I know you're asking in your Einstein imitation, what does it have to do with foreknowledge? Thank you for asking, it's a great question. I'm going to let Ralph Brown answer. Ralph. Uh, wrote an excellent book I have really enjoyed called The Model of Everything. Um, Ralph is brilliant. It's a very humble title. No, I'm kidding. It really is. It's a very good book. This is from page 94 of The Model of Everything. Ralph says this about the double slit experiment. "'What we can philosophically conclude is the light and the electrons, when they are fired, in some way have knowledge of future events.' Before being observed at the detector, their behavior has already been determined and was always in agreement with the detector configuration. To state the obvious, this conclusion runs contradictory to our accepted norms and concepts of time. It violates a required principle of science and human ontology: cause and effect. Now, while some knowledge of future, uh, while some knowledge of future events may seem illogical. What you're observing is merely a physical reaction to some stimulus just like any other scientific experiment. What makes this experiment different is the stimulus is apparently from the future. If light or electrons could and do have knowledge of future events, their behavior is completely explainable and consistent. Regardless of any explanation or theory of how the light knows how to behave, we should look for God in this natural phenomenon." God. He's right. The double slit light experiment, the whole reason I walked you through that is it illustrates for us God's foreknowledge. He who is the true light knows ahead of time what we cannot know. Now, on the right side of our notes, we find our next term, election. Every few years, Americans go through an election. Certain people are selected, set aside to serve as leaders. How many of you voted in the last election? Raise your hands. How many voted more than once? Kidding, I'm just, lighten up, I'm just kidding. Voting, voting is a fine thing. Um, however, voting has a potential negative repercussion for Christians. Here's what voting can do. I've noticed this as I've taught in, in different places around the world. Places where people vote have a harder time understanding the doctrine of election. Uh, follow me here. There's this subtle, powerful idea that takes, that takes a, a big, big part of the mind of people who vote. They think about the fact that we are the ones who select, we choose, we decide, we vote, we elect. In fact, in fact, voters begin to think, this, this is very common, we begin to think any decision upon which I don't vote must be inherently corrupt. It's not logical, but it's how we think. Even in constitutional republics, uh, shades of, of dark backroom machinations come to mind if we don't feel ourselves involved as people in a totally open process. So, when we get to election in the Bible, modern voters are predisposed to misunderstand God's role. They get nervous, they get woke up, they get prone to riot, but let's calm down and let's read Ephesians 1, 4, and 1 Peter 1, 1. 1 Peter 1:1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the... Chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, basically all of modern Turkey. What's that last word there, everybody? Chosen. Ephesians 1:1. 1, 1, For he, talking about God the Father, chose us in him, talking about Jesus, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Chosen. That is the doctrine of God's election. Romans 9 offers a great illustration of election. Um, uh, In Romans 9, Paul's discussing the twins Esau and Jacob, and and he says this, For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, quote from Genesis 25, the older will serve the younger. Election. Not their choice, but the choice of the one who called them forth. But we stammer, the boys didn't get to choose? Yes, they chose. Chill out. They chose. Other scriptures make it very clear that they made choices, but we need to understand this side of the truth that is so hard for us. God chose. He elected each boy to serve his purpose. Somehow, both their choice and his work together. They are independently true and work together. Now this brings us to the two great mistakes that are made regarding election. First, there are some people who will reduce human beings to fatalistic robots. By the way, um, these theologians are often called hyper-Calvinists. The second mistake is to remove election altogether, God's election altogether. That's what some flavors of the theologians called Arminians do. They squint their eyes and they read the Bible in a way that gets rid of God's choice altogether. They're both wrong. There's a recent Babylon B article that does a great job of showing the folly of each mistake. i got to read this to you. This is fantastic. Um, Los Angeles, California. Triple A Christian video game developer, 1517 Games, a venture startup, is set to release its new title, Calvinist 2077, this week. The game, of course, features no choices at all and is basically just four hours of non-interactive cutscenes without so much as a quick time event. Wow! They really did remove all choices from the game, said an excited fan trying out the new game. The protagonist just makes every decision without any choice from me. It's perfect. Another added, finally a video game that gets my theology correct and saves the battery life on my controller. <laughs> and I totally did not see that surprise ending coming. I thought the hero was gonna save the day, but it turns out that was outside God's will. The game is highly replayable with no customizable character options and over zero different endings. That's funny. By the way, this, I thought this was the funniest part of the whole thing. You see this? Pre-selected as game of the year. <laughs> now, they go on. Early reviews indicate the game is a masterpiece and an overnight success among Calvinist gamers. Despite this, several Arminian trolls have already trashed the game and tried to tank the reviews by complaining about the lack of choice, saying the player is reduced to no more than a robot. Close quote. God elects, God elects, and humans have responsible choice. Hyper-Calvinists and Arminian trolls are both wrong. I think Ralph Brown addresses this brilliantly. In in, in his section talking about the double-slit experiment, look what Ralph writes. This is really well said. The behavior of the light upon introduction to the experiment and the detector configuration that will exist when the light reaches it are two completely independent events. Similarly... God's election and our choice related to salvation are two completely independent events. Remember, Ralph says, we live in a cocoon with a time space boundary. The boundary establishes a separation between our physical universe and God's existence, and we are only able to pursue knowledge from within our cocoon. Election is a spear of knowledge provided by God, but we cannot fully comprehend it. Now, with all that in mind, let's review. Let's review some of these spears of knowledge with which God has pierced our cocoon. For ordination, God has planned the entire construction. For knowledge, God knows what will occur. This is according to His plan and somehow does not eliminate human choice. Election, God has chosen people to be blessed by the miracle of His undeserved grace. And that takes us to our ultimate word of the day, our wonderful word, predestination. Predestination is this, God has determined the end beforehand. Read the continued thought. You're in Ephesians 1, right? Okay, go back to verse 3, and let's read all the way through to the end of the thought in verse 6, or into this part of the thought. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved One. Predestination is determining the end of something beforehand. It's like the light experiment where somehow the light knew exactly what would transpire before the experiment began. Where we get off track, listen this is is very sad but very true, where we get off track when we talk about predestination, is we, we tend to focus on the unknowable aspect, the, the, the questions of how can this possibly be? Instead, when you look at it from the Bible, predestination is meant to focus our attention on the ends for which something is set aside. That's the whole point of it in the Bible, is to get us to focus on the ends God has in mind, not to worry about the how, but the what. What? Here are some of the ends for which Christians are predestined. Scripture says, you and I, these are just a few of the things in the Bible where the word predestination is used. You and I are set aside, Ephesians 1 forward, to be holy and blameless in what, everybody? In love. Ephesians 1, 5, we are set aside to be adopted in God's very family. Verse 6, to bring praise to His glorious grace. Verse 11 that we read earlier, to obtain an inheritance. Uh, Romans eight twenty nine we read earlier, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 says, we, we are predestined to obtain glory. That's what we're set aside for. One of the most stirring letters that I ever received came from the committee that placed me into my doctoral program. I received a letter from Her Majesty's Professional Development Foundation, and that letter read, and I quote, You have been set aside for the program in order that you might make a substantive contribution to the humanities. Close quote. And they meant that. I was chosen to the end that I might make a substantive contribution. In a similar way, Christian, listen. His true majesty says that you were set aside for these reasons, read the list with me. I'll, I'll read the reference, and you you read the end. Here are some of the ends for which Christians are predestined: Ephesians one four, to be holy and blameless in love. Verse five, to be adopted in God's very family. Verse six, to bring praise to His glorious grace. Verse eleven, to obtain an inheritance. Romans eight twenty nine, to be conformed to the image of His Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, to obtain glory. Amen. God sovereignly predestined us for that. All God's people said? Amen. Layson Ward of our pulpit team shared a really marvelous thought with me. I liked it so much I put, I put part of this in your notes that I could fit in. Layson wrote and said, predestination points to God's beautiful sovereignty. There's rest. There is literally nothing I could have done to earn God's salvation and nothing I can do to change his mind. That is immensely comforting. And then she quotes John chapter 6. Jesus tells us, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, John 6, 37 through 40. Layson continues, it's guaranteed. I'll spend all of eternity thanking and praising God for that, and still the gratitude I express will never be enough to accurately portray just how wonderful God is. Amen. Remember Two Saints Lake House, the roof comprised of tin and tile? It's time for just a second to bring in the other side of the roof for just a moment. We have gotten to know all these wonderful words that that I call the tile roof, predestination, election, foreknowledge, foreordination. But how can we understand that in light of the very, very real scriptural truths of the tin side, human choice and responsibility and what we call free will? There's one passage that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of, of how they connect together. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter really thought about this a great deal. P- Peter, Peter, Peter really put some time into this. The beginning of his second letter, he says this, verses 9 and 10. The person who lacks these things. <clears throat> Stop right there. Quick context. In the first eight verses, Peter has enumerated uh, these traits. Okay? These are the thing. When he says these things, here's what he means. Faith, goodness knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Okay? The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. we got to clear up one translation issue. Confirm. My, the, the word that my Bible translates, confirm, by the way, confirm is better than most English translations, but this is one of those times when there is no English translation that gets it. And it's not the fault of the translators. Different languages don't go to each other piece by piece. There are, there are differences. That's why, that's why it's hard to go from one language to another. Some things are easier. This is one that's really hard. It would take a paragraph to really do justice to this, so confirm is what they put. But, but the Greek word, uh, uh, bebios bebios. It, it doesn't. It doesn't mean something about you. It's not something you do. It means something trustworthy, a solid thing that will hold your weight. Look, this piece of cardboard, this flimsy piece of cardboard, is this bebios? Will it hold my weight? No, it did not. But this solid wood stage, this is strong. This will hold my weight. Peter says, remember your election. Remember and solidify your feet on the great predestined salvation that you have in Jesus. He is not saying, oh, go back and check again and make sure you really meant it when you trusted Jesus. That that is an absolute travesty to this passage. This is about the firmness of God's calling. It's not about you. It's not about your cardboard excuse for firmness in your life. Remember, predestination... Is something determined for an end, Second Peter lists all these ends for which you are saved: faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. because that, because you have confirmed yes, I have been set aside for that end, now act like it. This is where human responsibility comes into focus. you should. Act to stand firm on that salvation and make wise choices. We are responsible for these things. And by the way, remember the best part about predestination. Your actions can and should be completely empowered by God's grace. Read it again. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, for knowledge, for ordination, predestination, to the praise of his glorious what, everybody? Grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Because the Lord has predestined by his grace, we can't, because he has predestined by his grace, we can draw near and live as new creations. Because of his wonderful, amazing choice, human beings can live out this great salvation in, in faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly love, and affection. Here's how here's how one person put it. A recent letter that I got said it really, really well. This person wrote me and said, Wayne, As one who tends toward Pharisaical legalism in my fallen nature, the doctrine of predestination has transformed from an abhorrent, ugly thought to an immense comfort as I have aged. It is exhausting trying to be perfect all the time, especially since all our righteous deeds are as dirty rags to God. Thus, even my goodness is broken, and nothing I can do... Assure, I can do nothing to assure me of my salvation. In my most perfect day, I still fully deserve God's wrath. Thank God for His grace and mercy that Jesus lived the perfect life I could not. Even more, thank God that Jesus lived that life and bore my punishment on that cursed tree on my behalf. He did not stay dead, but continues to advocate for me and all believers at the right hand of the Father. Close quote. Amen. That's why we can fulfill our responsibility, because God has chosen to shower us with grace. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, that we will will accept and live out our calling, that we will stop trying to be God and worry about our flimsiness, and instead, We will stand on your grace. Father, these are are difficult things. We like to think that we're in charge. And your predestination, it's scary for us. Because we're cowards. Because we're pretenders and want to pretend that we're really big when we are so small. Your predestination is of incredible beauty that something as small as me would be so significant to you that you would give me a foundation of choosing me before the foundation of the world, before time, space, that you, would, that you would have election and foreknowledge and foreordination all work for me? It's, a, it's astonishing. And I praise you for it. I deserve it not. None of us who are Christians do. And yet you amazingly provide for us in grace. Lord, I pray for anyone, anyone who is studying with us today that has never trusted Jesus, that they will let go their (laughs) very fallen human ridiculous desire for omniscience, and they will trust you. As Michael Card said, they will surrender the hunger to say they must know and have the courage to say, I believe. Friend, God loves you, and He made a way for you in Jesus. Trust Him as Savior. He did die on that cross for you and rose from the dead. He prepared everything, including this moment right now in history, when you would be hearing the message of the good news of Christ. Respond to it. Trust Him. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, make sure you grab the, uh, the online form or the, the perforated page in your bulletin and make sure you put your response on there because I want to pray for you this week. I'm so excited for you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Thank you.